Well, this morning we're going to do some history, which I usually find fascinating. Why is it that certain things are the way they are anyway? You ever wonder? Why are there grating, gratings on the bridge decks of suspension bridges? Why are all 747s built with pilot seats way up on the second floor above the nose? Why are almost all pastors of evangelical Christian churches men and not women? Ever wonder? Usually, understanding history helps us know. And, of course, there is that truism that says that one thing we don't learn from history, the one thing that we do learn from history is that we don't learn from history. This morning, hopefully, we can learn something. But before we do, we've got to get back up to speed on where we're going because we stopped kind of abruptly last week. Does anybody remember exactly where we stopped? That's a dangerous question to ask, you know. Where, where, what did you do last week? We were in the middle of a quest. We were searching for evidence of female subordination in the creation story. Does that ring any bells? Last week, we thought about how the New Testament seems to advocate for women in leadership in the church. At least, it does by example. Women like Phoebe and Priscilla and Junia were genuine leaders and teachers and apostles, and Paul acknowledged them as such. But at the same time, a casual reading of certain statements that Paul makes seems to forbid the practice. And we looked at those, one of those, and we'll come to it again shortly. Either Paul was a hypocrite or there must be another way of understanding those statements that seem to be restrictive. I believe there is another way, but not everybody does. If you remember, I said that most of the difference in understanding about what the Bible permits and what it forbids regarding gender roles all boils down to one underlying principle. If you cut to the chase, it comes down to this. What was God's original intent for people in the beginning? When he made Adam and Eve back in the garden, did he design males to have the leadership? Did he make them with a built-in headship function and females to be subordinate? And so we went to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to see what we could find out. And here's what we learned from Genesis 1. This is a review that the Bible very plainly reports an equal pairing of male and female that together reflect the image of God. You remember verses 26 and 27 where God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the face of rule over the fish of the seas and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The play and counterplay of singular and plural nouns in these verses gives no hint anywhere of any functional superiority or headship submission. It's nowhere in Genesis 1. Both the man and the woman are the result of God's creative act. We saw that both of them are to share equally in the blessings and the responsibilities of procreation. Because remember, in verse 28, God told them both to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And we saw that both are to participate fully in the mandate of dominion over the earth and over all its creatures because God told them both to rule the earth. The only authority structure evident in Genesis 1 are God over the humans, both male and female, and the humans, both male and female, over the rest of creation. So we moved on to Genesis chapter 2, and we looked there. Chapter 2 is an, expa- is, an ex- is an expansion of the story of chapter 1, where God makes people. And for a while, Adam was very much single upon the face of the earth, right? You remember the animal parade? And you remember that as long as the man was by himself, God said it wasn't good. Why? Because God is not alone. And human beings are made in God's image. As long as Adam was by himself, solitary, he was not in God's image. God is a unity of oneness made up of a community of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for the human beings to be in God's image, they too had to be a unity of oneness formed by a community, in this case, a community of two. This is what God means in verse 18, where he says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that's exactly what he did in verse 21. It says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, here's where many people believe they see a hierarchical structure in God's original design, a structure that places males in a kind of headship and females in a kind of submission. And they say that there are at least five reasons, if not more, that this is so. And we looked at the first reason last week before we stopped. Does anybody remember what the first reason was? If anybody remembers, I'll give you the free book. Okay. Because the man came first, exactly. That he has the preeminence because he was first, women came second, so she is subordinate. That's how I used to treat my brother, same way. But that kind of reasoning doesn't fit the structure of how God tells the story. Because in the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2, it flows from good to better, and from better to better yet, and on to better and better and better. It does not flow from superior to inferior. The creation story moves from incompleteness to complete, to finale. And so we realize that if the order of creation teaches us anything, it teaches us that the female is superior because she came last and she was the apex, the zenith of God's creative work. And here's where we get to the new material now. There are a few other reasons people say these verses show the inferiority of women. They say because she was taken out of man, she is the lesser of the two, that her existence is derived from his. Well, for one thing, it doesn't say that the woman was taken out of the man. It says that a rib was taken out of the man and then fashioned into a woman. Derivation does not determine hierarchy. 
Adam was taken from the dirt. But that doesn't mean that he is submissive to dirt, does it? Of course not. Actually, the verbs used here in the creative process would indicate, again, that if one of them is going to be superior, it's probably the woman. Because he forms man from the dust of the ground, but he builds a woman from the rib. Some translations say he fashioned the rib into a woman. That verb in the text here that the NIV translates as made, it means to construct in an aesthetic sense, to make something very beautiful and pleasing to the eye. And by the way, God did use a rib, meaning that he opened up Adam's side, and the symbolism there is just plain obvious. She was to stand at his side as an equal. Otherwise, God would have used one of those big leg bones or a foot bone. Her subordinate status is also attributed to the fact that she was made to be his helper. God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. We read that word helper and we make the assumption that she is to be his assistant, a kind of a sidekick, a kind of live-in maid to do his laundry or maybe cook his meals, an inferior. But the Hebrew word behind this English word helper is fascinating. It is the word ezer. The word occurs 19 other places outside of Genesis. In all but two of those places, this word ezer refers to God himself as the helper of Israel. God who comes to the rescue of his people when all other hope is lost. Ezer is never used to describe a subordinate. It is always used to describe a superordinate. It would be better to translate it as rescuer, and a few translations actually do. God says, I will make a rescuer suitable for him or corresponding to him. The question begs to be asked here, in a perfect garden, free from sin, why did the man need a rescuer? What was the problem? Well, the problem was that he was alone. He was not in the image of God. God's creation of human beings as image bearers was not finished yet. So he made the woman to rescue the man from his solitary state so that together they could reflect the divine image. Here in Genesis, the woman is the easer. In other words, she is like God, coming to rescue the man. Now, maybe she cooked the meals too. Who knows? More than likely, they both did the cooking. But the point is, here she is his equal before God. And Moses used a very specific word to make sure we understood that, the word easer. Well, people say, well, he named the woman. That indicates superior status. That whispers headship. But in the Bible, if the act of naming signifies anything about the name giver, it signifies discernment, not authority. In Genesis 16, Hagar names God, too. She calls him the God who sees me. Does that mean Hagar is superior to God because she named him? Of course not. 
If you read the story in Genesis carefully, you discover Adam doesn't name the woman until chapter 3, until after the fall. In chapter 2, God has already referred to her as a woman while Adam is still under the anesthetic. That's in verse 22. So we can sum up what Genesis 2 teaches regarding hierarchy between the man and the woman. It simply doesn't exist. There is no reasonable hint that the woman was created in any way to be subordinate to the man. Well, if Genesis 1 doesn't teach it, and Genesis 2 doesn't teach it, then where does it come from? It comes as a result of sin. Genesis 3, Linda just read it for us. It comes just like divorce comes because of the hardness of human hearts. Let's take a look. The Bible should have been a very short book, two chapters. But you know that God had an enemy lurking there in that per perfect paradise, waiting for an opportunity to wreck the image of God, to ruin the community of oneness God made when he created man and woman. Eve ate the apple, she gave some to her husband, and he ate it too. Things went downhill fast. Now comes shame and blame. God asks, what happened? The man blames the woman. The woman blames the snake. The snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. And the Bible suddenly becomes a very long book. The story of God, the jilted lover, in persistent pursuit of his prodigal people to win them back, to recover little by little what they had squandered, the image of God the community of oneness. And that story is still ongoing. It's playing out still today in your life and mine. But let's look at what happened in the garden after the fall, after sin. God comes and he conducts what is best described as a legal trial. Adam and Eve are the defendants. And at the conclusion, God renders the sentence. First of all, he curses the serpent, and then he pronounces judgment on the woman, and finally upon the man. What we want to be clear on here is what he said to the woman, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The meaning of that, those last two lines is crucial. Her desire will be for who? Her husband. And he will do what? Rule over her. This word rule, it's not the same word that's used in Genesis 2, where God tells the humans to rule over the earth. There's a careful distinction between how human beings are to have dominion over the earth and how the husband will rule his wife. It's a softer verb, although it does indicate her subjection to him. It's not as strong a word, but it means, uh, in the best sense of the word, that the husband is going to be the head, uh, albeit a kind of uh, a first among equals kind of thing. Now, some interpreters believe what God is saying here is not prescriptive, 
but rather descriptive. It's just a glimpse into, into how it's all going to play out. But it's more than that. God was telling them that because of the rupture in community, because of the effects that sin would make on every single human being to, to make them hard-hearted and selfish, that submission of one to the other would have to be the order of the day. And since the woman had sinned first, she would be the one that would be required to submit. If Adam had sinned first, all indications are that he would have had to have been the one to submit. So there is a huge change now, a huge contrast between the first two chapters of Genesis and chapter 3 and onward. We move from a world where there is no pain and no hard labor for either the man or the woman to a world where there is pain and hard labor for them both. We move from a world where there is no hierarchy between the man and the woman to a world in which the woman is to submit to her husband. We move from a world where there is no death to a world where death is universal and inevitable. We move far from Eden. Much was lost. It's interesting when you think about it. Adam had been taken from the ground. Now he will have to work hard to get his living from the ground. And eventually the ground will swallow him up. Eve had been taken in a sense from the man. And now, within the marriage relationship, she would, in a sense, have to get her living from him. And in a sense, he would swallow her up. Listen to what one writer has to say about this. In the creation, God had made Eve the equal of Adam. Had they remained obedient to God... In harmony with his great law of love, they would ever have been in harmony with each other. But sin had brought discord, and now their union could be maintained and harmony preserved only by submission on the part of the one or the other. Eve had been the first in transgression, and she had fallen into temptation by separating from her companion, contrary to the divine direction. It was by her solicitation that Adam had sinned, and she was now placed in subjection to her husband. Had the principles enjoined in the law of God been cherished by the fallen race, this sentence, though growing out of the results of sin, would have proved a blessing to them. But man's abuse of the supremacy thus given him has too often rendered the lot of woman very bitter and made her life a burden. That author is Ellen White. There are two things that you have to remember from Genesis chapter 3. These two are critical. Number one, the subjection or submission of the wife to the husband came about only after the fall into sin. It was not that way from the beginning. And number two, the headship submission principle is limited in Genesis 3 to the husband-wife relationship. It does not involve a general submission of all women to all men. 
God is careful here in, to use the terms husband and wife. He does not use the terms male and female like he does in Genesis chapter 1. Watch this. Look again at verse 16. God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. What does that mean, that term, desire? The Hebrew term for that word is a very unique word in Scripture. In fact, it's only used in one other place in the whole Bible. Want to guess where? Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. Song of Solomon, that wonderful, steamy celebration of physical love between a man and his wife, where the Shulamite bride joyfully exclaims, I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. Did you know that scholars believe this verse in Song of Solomon was written as a commentary on Genesis 3, 16? Here in Song of Solomon, this rare word desire indicates a wholesome sexual desire for intimacy. In Genesis 3, God uses the term to indicate that a blessing will accompany the divine judgment. A divinely ordained, intimate, sexual yearning of wife for husband will serve as a blessing to sustain the union that has been threatened by the rupture resulting from sin. In other words, the wife's desire will remain as God originally intended it to be, a desire to become one flesh with her husband. The image of God, though marred, will be preserved and restored. Now, of course, the question fairly begs to be asked. If you broaden the headship submission principle of Genesis 3 and apply it to all men and all women, what do you do with this verse? Hmm? The headship of the husband in this verse can no more be broadened to all man-woman relationships than the desire in this verse can be broadened to mean the sexual desire of all women for all men. You have to be consistent in the interpretation. Furthermore, this whole headship submission principle laid down in Genesis 3 between a husband and a wife is amplified by the New Testament. It's amplified to mean a servant headship mutual submission principle. Ephesians 5 is Paul's foundational statement on this in the New Testament. Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives ought to submit to their husbands in everything. Well, there it is. Question. Is Paul writing about all men and all women, or is he writing about husbands and wives? He's writing about husbands and wives. It says so, and the principle behind it comes from Genesis 3. But now look at what the husband's headship looks like. Verse 25 says, Husbands, 
Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. Now that's a pretty radical thing, isn't it? This is a very radical headship principle to the point of death. Headship means if you are a husband, you serve your wife to the point of dying for her. So that means it's a kind of mutual submission. In fact, that's why Paul introduces this whole teaching with verse 21 where he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission. That's the Eden ideal. In summary then, here's what we've got. From the beginning, male and female participated equally in the image of God, no subordination of one to the other. Submission of wives to husbands was not the creation ideal. It came about as a result of sin and hard-heartedness. The headship submission principle applies only within the marriage relationship, not to men and women in general. There is a headship principle at work in the New Testament church that applies to everybody. You know there is, right? It's not males being given leadership and females submitting to male headship. Want to guess what it is? It's the whole church, men and women, submitting to the headship of Jesus. He is the husband of the church. The church is his bride. And by the way, his desire is for us. So that's the interpretive lens, okay? That's how we come at some of these more difficult to understand passages. Let's see how it works with our New Testament prohibition, and then we'll do some history. Here's 1 Timothy chapter 2 again. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission... I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. If Paul wanted to mean that females shouldn't teach men, he could have used the Greek word that meant female, which is thele. It's a fairly rare word, and he uses it in other places, like Galatians chapter 3, where he says there is no longer male or female, thele. It means specifically the female gender. But here in Timothy, he uses the common Greek word gyne, which can be translated either as woman or wife. Nor does he use the rare word that means male, the word arson. Instead, he uses the common Greek word anthropos, a word that can be translated either as man or husband. So, the text could just as honestly be translated like this. A wife should learn quietly and in full submission. I do not permit a wife to teach or have authority over her husband. Paul isn't talking about males and females here. He's talking about husbands and wives. Even the context bears this out. If you look at verse 15, he goes on to say, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, whatever else Paul is trying to say in this difficult verse, one thing is crystal clear. Women are the ones who bear children. And they are supposed to do that within the marriage relationship. 
Marriage is what Paul has in view here, and it's within marriage that the headship submission principle applies. Most of the New Testament statements that seem, on the surface, in a casual way, to restrict all women from leadership can, re can be resolved in this way. Why then, when the Bible was being translated, didn't the translators make it clear? Why did they do things like change the gender ending and make Junia into Junius? It all boils down to one word, tradition. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof? Remember that? Tradition, yeah. Now it's time to do some history. And this is the fascinating part. We're a long way from Eden now, so the kingdom of God has always been opposed in the wider culture. It always runs up against barriers. In the wider culture, men have generally dominated women for one fairly simple, fairly obvious reason. Men are bigger and stronger, and so they are more able to dominate women than women are to dominate men. And because of this, and from early on, the wider culture developed into a patriarchal society. But God has always had a people, a covenant people, those in whom he is developing the principles of his kingdom, those he is calling, in a sense, back to Eden. In contrast to the patriarchy of the day, the Bible contains significant correctives to the surrounding cultures. It provides many examples of women who lead and teach. It portrays women in ways that are very countercultural. Furthermore, the New Testament that, recognizes that gifts, including leadership, are given by the Spirit without gender or class distinctions, unlike in the surrounding societies where leadership was almost always an exclusively male function. Yet by the end of the fourth century, female leadership in the church had become practically non-existent. What happened? Two major social pressures came together to, to cause this change. Number one, the worldview of society against women in leadership roles. And number two, the sacramental system and the hierarchical priesthood of the medieval church. A scholar by the name of John Reeve has written about this. You can read it in the book that I'll give you. I have, I have uh, 12 copies of the book this morning that you can have. If more than 12 of you would like a copy of this, I'll order as many as you would like to have. Okay? But his excellent article is in, is in the book. And if you want a, a, a three-page summary of his article, email me or Jay, and we'll send you a copy of that. Anytime you look back at history, the story is always complicated. But here's the basic plot line, okay? Very rough, very broad strokes. You know that the very first followers of Jesus were all Jews. The very early Christian church was made up almost exclusively of Jewish believers. But as Christianity began to grow 
and spread among Gentiles, there were some people who thought the time had come for the church to distinguish itself from Judaism. Now, the Jews were not always popular in the wider culture of the day. And three significant events happened that tended to make people view the Jews in a bad light. There was the Jewish revolt in A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus marched into Jerusalem with his army, leveled the temple, wiped out the city. It was known as the Great Revolt, but there were others. There was a, a, a large Jewish revolt in Egypt in 113, and then in 135 came the second great Jewish revolt. Up to that point, Roman law had protected the Jewish religion, but by the time of the second revolt, Emperor Hadrian had had just about enough. He came down hard on the Jewish people, even making it illegal for them to live anymore in Jerusalem. Among the people throughout the empire, any connection to the Jews was seen as ingratitude for the advantages provided by the state, if not as outright treason against Rome. And so certain people within the church sought to distance Christianity from Judaism, to make it appear as an honorable religion in the public eye. One of the most visible border issues between Judaism and society at large was the Saturday Sabbath, and to a lesser extent, customs, such as not eating pork. But Christians kept Saturday too. So by the middle of the second century, several influential Christian churches were already advocating keeping the day of the resurrection, Sunday, as the day of worship. Why? So that people wouldn't mistake Christianity for Judaism, to distance the, the church from the Jews. It wasn't a change mandated by Scripture, as you well know. And hundreds of years later, of course, as you also know, the keeping of Sunday also served as a bridge issue to make it easier for pagans who were used to worshiping the sun god to come into the church. But it began as the result of public pressure and the need to make the church look good to the outsiders who were fed up with the Jews. But there's more. By the end of the first century, there were teachers within the early church already complaining, already uh, claiming that Peter and Paul were alive in heaven. Now, you all know that there's no biblical support for the idea that human beings have souls that are immortal, uh, that we go to heaven immediately when we die. But by the early second century, that idea had gotten a foothold in Christian teaching. Where did that come from? Well, from Plato, basically, and his philosophical teachings of dualism and the nature of matter versus spirit. From his teachings that worthy humans gain an immediate ascent of the soul into the divine realm upon the death of the body. But there's even more. At the heart of Christianity, there was a radical teaching known as forgiveness. But that teaching didn't sit well in some political circles because it made the church seem to be soft on misbehavior. There's no punishment. You can just be forgiven. 
And so by the end of the second century, the seeds were already sown within the church for an idea known as hell, a place of ever-burning fire where sinners would get everlasting punishing. Why? Because a robust judgment on sin in the afterlife could dispel a public perception of Christianity as immoral and its citizens as immoral and bad citizens. Of course, this teaching on hell wouldn't come to full flower for several more centuries, but by 200 AD, the seeds of it were already there. Sunday worship instead of Sabbath, the immortal soul, hell. I mean, when I took church history, my professor, C. Mervyn Maxwell, had a saying he used to repeat, and it went like this. He would say, the speed at which the early church tobogganed into apostasy nearly takes one's breath away. And it's true. None of these ideas are biblical, but they all became part of the overwhelming tradition of the church that persists to our very day among most churches. I mean, doesn't it? It takes careful Bible study to help Christians who have grown up accepting these traditions to discover what the Bible actually teaches. But there's still more. There was one more significant casualty of truth that became part of church tradition. The idea that women should not lead within the church. How did that happen? Because in the wider culture, everyone knew that women were essentially different from men by nature. That they were inferior. Why'd they believe that? Because for hundreds of years, that's what they had been taught. Have you ever heard of a really famous Greek thinker, a philosopher named Aristotle? No. Well, Aristotle taught something called the hierarchy of being. It was a very famous treatise published about 350 years before Jesus lived. In his hierarchy of being, the male gender was superior to the female gender. And Aristotle considered that to be axiomatic, which means it's just obviously true. It's part of natural law. It was based on his observation of male dominance in most of the higher animals. He believed there was a fundamental difference in nature between people who were born to rule, which were men, and people who were born to be ruled, which were women, children, and slaves. He taught that rulers have rational souls and subjugated people have irrational souls. Aristotle had a teacher. His name was Plato. Plato believed the same thing. Plato said things like this. Pleasures, pains, and appetites that are numerous and multifarious are things one would especially find in children, women, and household slaves, that is, in inferior people. Teachings like these formed the worldview of the day. And just like the Greek idea of, the soul, of, the, of soul immortality crept into the church, the idea of women as inferior crept into the church. 
Aristotle's hierarchy of being with its class and gender disparities within humanity became a, became a kind of moral compass for the church. But it also formed the philosophical underpinnings for the political system of the day. Caesar Augustus considered male dominance in the home and in society to be the basis of defense against anarchy and chaos. Political stability was vital in the Roman system. Why? Because about 5% of the population ruled the other 95%, all for the benefit of the 5%. Any instability would threaten the whole system. Since the worldview was one of male dominance, the New Testament teaching that women could be leaders was considered subversive to the stability of society, and so it was downplayed. Are you beginning to understand how all this became part of Christian tradition? There are some choice examples in the early church of Christians adopting this Platonic, Greco-Roman worldview of the inferiority of women, that women were of a different nature and of an inferior class to men. A guy named Tertullian was a famous teacher in the church in the early third century. Tertullian used Paul's statements in 1 Timothy to generalize the unworthiness of women and to disqualify them from leadership. Here's one of his classic statements. This statement was written not about women, but to them. Do you not know that each of you are an Eve? The sentence of this sex of yours lives in this age. The guilt of it must necessarily live too. You are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of the tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily God's image in man. Wow. Tertullian didn't even believe women contributed to the image of God. Another famous teacher in the 5th century was Augustine. He taught that men have spiritual minds, but that women have small minds. That women live more in accordance with the promptings of what he called the interior flesh than by superior reason. These are some of the thinkers that shaped Christian tradition. And so the trajectory of the Bible showing women in more positive roles than the surrounding culture was truncated and turned aside by the church, which followed the trajectories of the Greco-Roman worldview. Of course, the nail in the coffin for all this was the development of the pagan understanding of salvation within the church and the accompanying hierarchical priesthood. By the middle of the third century, what was to become the medieval understanding of salvation was already clarified under the three principles of church order. You're gonna, this is just amazing. These three principles of church order go like this. Number one, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother, which meant that salvation was only possible through the church. Number two, the church is defined by and identified with the bishop. 
which created a distinction between clergy and laity, a distinction which is completely foreign to the New Testament, and number three, that only the bishop could forgive sins. And that had the effect of placing spiritual authority firmly in the hands of the bishops, eliminating any further possibility for women to have any part in leadership. And they didn't. It was this sacramental system of salvation that sparked the great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Reformers like Luther and Calvin firmly rejected this teaching. But what about the other unbiblical ideas that had become a part of church tradition? What about the Sabbath? What about the teaching on the Bible teaching on death and hell? What about the New Testament teaching that the Spirit bestows gifts of leadership on whomever he chooses, male and female? The Adventist movement in the 19th century made it a high priority to reform back to the principles of Scripture rather than to rely blindly on tradition. The Sabbath was reclaimed from its loss, but most churches still follow church tradition even today. The truth about death and hell was reclaimed, but most churches today still teach the immortal soul. And the early Adventists also reclaimed the correctness of women teaching, preaching, and leading the church. But most churches still restrict women from full participation in leadership because of tradition. How about us today? How about us? That's what we learn from history. That's the long, sordid story of why certain things are the way they are. But they don't have to stay the way they are. We can move back toward Eden. So here's the bottom line for this morning. Okay? God says that in the last days, he's going to pour out his Holy Spirit on all people. You know, the last days began when Jesus came out of the tomb on resurrection morning. We've been living in the last days for a couple of thousand years now, and God says he's going to pour out his spirit on all people, irrespective of age, irrespective of gender. We believe that, don't we? We pray for that, don't we? Joel says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. We long for the spirit. So God calls us, his church, to return to that Eden ideal that allows women full access to the gifts and calling of his spirit. As the spirit gifts women for ministry, may his church keep in step with the spirit and follow his leading. Let's stand together as we, as we finish and sing. <clears throat>